Hello, my name is Eva, and today I am going to talk about the aftermath of one of the most famous battles in history, the Battle of Thermopylae. Whether you've seen Zack Snyder's 2006 film, 300, which is spectacular to look at and, well, somewhat accurate, or have studied the battle in school, university, or just through happy reading, you probably know, or know someone who knows, the broad strokes of the battle, and I will only hastily touch upon them here. The Battle of Thermopylae was fought between Persians and Greeks, with the Persians led by Xerxes I, known as King of Kings of the Achaemenid Empire. Against the Persians stood King Leonidas of Sparta and his famous 300 men, and, oft forgotten but no less important, were the 3,000 or so other Greeks from, amongst other places, Thebes, Thespiae, and a contingent of Helots. Helots were an ancient tribe enslaved by the Spartans. The battle took place over three days in 480 BCE and was part of the second Persian invasion of Greece. By 480, the Persians were, after several setbacks, intent on conquering the whole of Greece. To this end, Xerxes gathered a navy of around 1,200 ships and soldiers numbering up to 100,000. I must just add that ancient sources cite numbers and figures of 2 to 10 million, but that does sound a little unrealistic, and certainly modern historians doubt it very much. Anyway, Xerxes and his army crossed the Hellespont with Thessaly in northeast Greece as their goal. In response to this, the Greeks blocked the Persian navy at the Straits of Artemisium and moved to block the Persian army at the narrow mountain pass of Thermopylae in northeast Greece. This mountain pass basically gave access to the rest of Greece. And it was here that the Greeks held the might of the Persian army at bay for two whole days until they, on the third day, were betrayed by a local man and not a disabled Spartan as depicted in the film. The local man showed the Persians a mountain footpath which bypassed Thermopylae. Now when the Greeks discovered that they were about to be surrounded and cut off, the majority of the Greeks, including the Athenians, retreated, while Leonidas and the men he led which were around 400 Thebans and 300 Thespians, and, of course, the 300 from Sparta. They chose to remain as the Persians sneaked up on them and then revealed themselves on the high ground overlooking the mountain pass. Leonidas and his men fought to the death, or, in the words of Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, the Greeks, 
reckless of their own safety and desperate since they knew that as the mountain had been crossed, their destruction was nigh at hand, exerted themselves with the most furious valor. Leonidas, he died fighting some distance from his own men, and by ferocious fighting, his men recovered his body, at least while they were alive, and made their last stand on a small hill before they too were completely annihilated. And usually for the Persians, who were actually known to honor a valiant enemy, Xerxes ordered Leonidas's body to be decapitated and his body strung from a cross. As Herodotus wrote, This proves to me most clearly what is plain also in many other ways, namely that King Xerxes was more angry with Leonidas while he was still in life than with any other man. The three-day holdout allowed the majority of the Greek armies, those who had chosen to retreat, to reach safety, regroup, and fight another day. Following the eventual defeat of the Persians in 479, the Spartans who fought at Thermopylae were buried under a mound on that very hill where they made their last stand and they were celebrated with that famous epitaph written some years later and which is still famous today. Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here obedient to their laws we lie. And ever since, from antiquity to present day, these Spartans have been hailed as the greatest of heroes who fought until none were left alive. Even the epitaph implies as much, as in there were none alive to journey to Sparta to tell the news of the death of Sparta's sons. And yet, there were actually four people, Greeks, who were at or near Thermopylae who did not die in the onslaught. And I have always been fascinated with their fate. What happened to them? after the Battle of Thermopylae? Well, the very first person of interest, so to speak, would have to be Ephialtes of Thrakis. He was a Greek shepherd who lived in the mountains behind the pass of Thermopylae. On the evening of the second day of battle, he made his way to the Persian camp and persuaded the very, very suspicious generals to allow him to speak to Xerxes. And to Xerxes, he revealed a secret trail south of the narrow pass of Thermopylae that led to a road behind the Greeks' position. He hoped for a reward in whispering this vital secret to the attackers. And, well, he would have to hope for something from the enemy, for his deed was one of treason. He was made promises of great rewards when the Persians have, had defeated the Greeks. Now, all ethical problems aside with this, Ephialtes' treachery brought him into close quarters with very high danger. If the Spartans won, well... They were not known for showing clemency to those who betrayed them. But on the other hand, if the Persians won, 
Iphialtes would have very few friends left among his old Greek allies, and he would always be the victim of a little bit of suspicion from his new friends, the Persians. In this case, the Persians won, but later that year, galvanized in part by the tales of the Spartans at Thermopylae, the Greek city-states defeated Persia at the Battle of Salamis in late September 480 BCE. This caused the Persians to retreat from Greece, leaving behind a now friendless and utterly unprotected Iphialtes. He fled and found a hiding place in Thessaly, but several city-states and religious leagues had already offered a reward for his death. Nowhere was safe for him. No one was ready to help. Despite this, he actually lived for 10 years on the run until he was killed in 470 BCE by Athenades, apparently for a completely unrelated reason. But his killer was nonetheless paid the reward by the Spartans. At last, their dead were avenged. Of the Greeks who witnessed the Battle of Thermopylae, Ephialtes was known to have survived the longest. Another who might have survived but chose not to was Eurytus of Sparta. He was one of the 300 Spartans, but then, stricken with an eye disease that blurred his sight, Leonidas ordered him on the second day to return to Sparta. Lying ill in a nearby village, news reached him and his companion, who too was ill, that the Persians had encircled their fellow soldiers. Herodotus writes that Eurytus argued with his companion about the right course of action, continue to Sparta or return to fight. Eurytus, he decided to fight and ordered his helot attendant to help him don his armor and ordered the helot to lead the way. Eurytus, blinded and sick, returned to Thermopylae and rushed into battle as the fight was all but done and was immediately killed. However, his was an honorable choice, according to the values of the Spartans, and stood in very stark contrast to his companion. Aristodemus. Aristodemus had been stricken with the same eye disease as Eurytus and had also been sent home by Leonidas. And while Eurytus chose to fight, Aristodemus argued that they should follow Leonidas's direct order and return to Sparta. When Eurytus left, Aristodemus made his way home. Now, he was a Spartan and must have speculated as to the reception he would receive when he returned without the rest of the army. Perhaps he thought that by obeying Leonidas's direct order, that would count for something. And he was, after all, visually impaired. No matter. When he returned to Sparta, he was subjected to all manner of humiliation and disgrace, and he was branded a coward, though there is no evidence that that was the case. 
According to a story, Aristodemus was habitually wished a long and peaceful life, a very Spartan insult as men were supposed to die in battle. In his account of the Greco-Persian Wars, Herodotus recounts that no man would sit beside Aristodemus or share their fire with him, which in Spartan society would have been devastating as fighting men all ate and slept in communal halls, so being an outcast was very visible. This reminds me by and by of a scene in that excellent TV series, Band of Brothers, in which a valiant soldier, Webster, is wounded and hospitalized, and upon his return to his regiment, he is scorned for not discharging himself earlier, but staying in hospital until his wounds were healed. There is something very harsh in that kind of judgment on people who have already seen and survived gruesome days. But back to Aristodemus, who allegedly kept his head bowed but spirit unbroken until the following year when the Greeks again gave battle to the Persians at Plataea. And it was in this battle, which the Greeks won decisively, that Aristodemus finally was redeemed. After insisting on joining the fighting men, Aristodemus stood in the front line of the phalanx, and as battle commenced, he charged alone towards the enemy, leaving the phalanx way behind him. And after slaying the first four enemy soldiers he's charged into, he himself was slain. The Spartans agreed he was now redeemed, but he was not granted the highest honors for his bravery. Why? Because, while Spartans esteemed death in battle above all else, the Spartan warrior was supposed to battle without fear of dying, but fight as if he wished to live. And Aristodemus's suicidal charge was just a little too reckless for those laconic Spartans. So while they now thought him a true man, they did not remember him in song. Herodotus, though, he afforded Aristodemus a beautiful passage in his recount of the battle, and pointed at Aristodemus as the bravest of all Spartans who fought at the battle. One of the last Spartans to survive Thermopylae was said to have been Pantetus, who, like Aristodemus, had been on the field of battle from the beginning but was then sent on a mission to Thessaly immediately prior to that third fateful day. He was quite possibly sent by Leonidas to recruit more men. He did what he was asked, then returned to Thermopylae, but he arrived long after the battle was over. The Spartans were dead and the Persians had already moved on. He, too, returned to Sparta and he too was shunned. But unlike Aristodemus, he could not live with the disgrace, and he hanged himself some time afterwards. It is remarkable that for all the glory, and it is well-deserved glory that is connected to Thermopylae, 
it has this darker side of extreme consequences because people did not die in battle because they were obeying orders or were in the right place at the wrong time. This battle was long fought on the battlefield and long, long afterwards. I shall end today with a few words on Herodotus, whom I have mentioned throughout this podcast. He was born in 484 in Halicarnassus, which at the time was actually under Persian occupation, and he was even in his lifetime known as a preeminent historian and geographer. And he published, as it were, his histories of the Greco-Persian wars with an oral recitation of them at the Olympic Games around 430 BCE. And for this, he was said to have received a rapturous standing ovation. His histories were intently read in antiquity, with Cicero, the Roman orator, naming Herodotus the father of history. And even today, his account of the Greco-Persian Wars, with its sometimes exaggerated stories, is still the primary source for any research into this era that really was a most restless time in history. I hope you enjoyed this sidestep from the famous event to looking at what really happened afterwards. And if you liked this episode, please consider leaving a like, as it really helps with the algorithms of the world, or the cyber world, as the podcast grows. I hope you're here for next week, and until then, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.